For more information on Ancient Dragon Zen Gate, please visit our website at www.ancientdragon.org. Our teachings are offered to the community through the generosity of our supporters. To make a donation online, please visit our website. Good morning, everyone. Welcome. I'm uh, very happy to have with us to speak this morning, Sudesh Mukherjee. Uh, Many of you know Sudesh from the years that he practiced at uh, Ancient Dragon Zen Gate back in the old, old days when we had a temple on Irving Park Road. Um, Sudesh uh, is originally from India and returned to India for a while after he left uh, Chicago, where he got his PhD from Loyola University in social work and is now back in the USA teaching at the University of Vermont. Uh, And uh, uh, I'm really happy to have Sudesh here to speak today. Thank you, Sudesh. Thank you, Tygen, and wonderful to see all of you. I'm I'm grateful for this opportunity to share a few thoughts. Uh, Before we get started, uh, can everyone hear me okay? Okay, that's a lot of thumbs, great. So um, I'll start by sharing a uh, koan. I'll read the koan, then I'll I'll say a few words of context. I'll I'll just share some background and then I'll read it again. Um, When studying in the assembly of Matsu, Dame asked him, what is Buddha? Matsu replied, mind itself is Buddha. Upon hearing these words, Dame had a realization. Later, he climbed to the top of a mountain and dwelt there in a hut. After many years, Matsu sent a monk to ask Dame, when you studied with Matsu, what did you understand that led you to live on this mountain? Dame said, Matsu said to me, mind itself is Buddha. That's why I'm living here. The monk said, nowadays, Buddha Dharma is different. Dame said, how is it different? The monk said, now Matsu is saying, no mind, no Buddha. Dame said, that old man always confuses people. Let him say, no mind, no Buddha. As for me, mind itself is none other than Buddha. The monk brought Dame's response to Matsu. Matsu said, the plum has ripened. So I'll say just a few words, um, adding some context uh, to this story. So I think um, all of you will probably know this, but I'll say it uh, just in case. A koan in Zen is um, a story or an anecdote or a question or a statement um, that is a pointer. It's pointing out something that... um, perhaps an aspect of reality, perhaps that is not um, readily um, pointed to using conventional language. It's pointing the way for us to understand an aspect of reality. And so there are many koans, and uh, this is one of them. And this is in a collection called the Wumen Kwan in Chinese, or the Mumon Khan in Japanese, and in English translated most often as the Gateless Gate. So this is the 30th koan in the Gateless Gate. And there are a few, um, there are three characters, there are three people in this story. The first is Matsu. So this is Matsu Daoyi, the 
eighth century Chinese Chan master. So the Zen master, um, the Chan master in Chinese, the Zen master known as Baso in Japanese, um, one of the great masters of Zen history, um, celebrated in his time and celebrated throughout history in Zen. Another person in the story is Fa Chang Dame. So in this story, Fa Chang Dame is a, um, he's a student under the guidance of Matsu, um, learning from Matsu as he practices. And so um, he asks Matsu this question, what is Buddha? And then after gaining realization, he climbs onto a mountain where he, is, he establishes a hut and he continues practicing on his own. He eventually becomes a great teacher um, and he takes the name Dame after the mountain where he lives. And Dame translates to the great plum. And so this helps uh, the story become understandable. In the end of the story, when Matsu says the plum has ripened, what this means is Dame has reached maturity. This is Matsu's confirmation, his affirmation of Dame's practice. The plum has ripened, has reached maturity. And the third person is an unnamed Zen monk, the proverbial unnamed monk. And so there might be more to say, but I'm not sure about him. Um, so I'll read the story one more time with the added context. When studying in the assembly of Matsu, Dami asked him, what is Buddha? Matsu replied, mind itself is Buddha. Upon hearing these words, Dami had a realization. Later, he climbed to the top of a mountain and dwelt there in a hut. After many years, Matsu sent a monk to ask Dami, when you studied with Matsu, what did you understand that led you to live on this mountain? Dame said, Matsu said to me, mind itself is Buddha. That is why I'm living here. The monk said, nowadays Buddha Dharma is different. Dame said, how is it different? The monk said, now Matsu says, no mind, no Buddha. Dame said, that old man always confuses people. Let him say, no mind, no Buddha. As for me, mind itself is none other than Buddha. The monk brought Dame's response to Matsu. Matsu said, the plum has ripened. So I'll briefly share a few thoughts um, about this uh, koan. And um, there are bound to be inaccuracies and um, omissions. And so I'm grateful to have many more experienced practitioners to uh, help correct that. So um, there are two responses that Matsu offers to this very uh, classic question. What is Buddha? So what do we think? Is it, what is Buddha? Mind itself is Buddha. Or is it, what is Buddha? No mind, no Buddha. What do we think about this? Let's take a moment just to kind of uh, sit with that. Sit with each of these responses. Perhaps we can start by considering this first response by Matsu. Mind itself is Buddha. 
This is an idea that has been conveyed in various forms um, in Zen literature. One is mind itself is Buddha, or perhaps we can say ordinary mind is the way. And we can become familiar with this uh, through our own practice. In our practice, we just sit. So we sit with the entirety of our body, of our heart, of our mind, engaged in simply the act of sitting, the unadorned act of sitting. We focus ourselves fully, we relax ourselves fully into the unadorned act of sitting. And this somehow is said to be the actualization of sitting Buddha nature. So ordinary mind, mind itself is Buddha. In our practice, we uh, clean the zendo, we wash dishes, we share meals together. And when we do these things with the entirety of body, of heart, of mind, pouring ourselves fully just into the activity, the unadorned activity, we can say that this is the actualization of cleaning the zendo Buddha, of eating Buddha nature, of washing dishes Buddha nature. Ordinary mind is the way. Mind itself is Buddha. Our daily practice, our daily life. This itself is Buddha. I speak, you listen. You speak, I listen. And this itself, Buddha. So this is something I think that we understand um, as practitioners is something that we're familiar with as practitioners. And <clears throat> it's very important, um, and it's very simple, and it's very profound at the same time. So why bother with the second response? Why no mind, no Buddha? Where does that come into it? Why not just leave it at ordinary mind? Why not just leave it at mind itself as Buddha? Why bother with that second thing? Well, I think if we were to explain this in Buddhist terms, and forgive me for doing this, I'm sure I'll do it quite ham-handedly compared to um, some of the scholars in the room, but I suppose if we were to make a dry explanation, we could say that the first response of Matsu is pointing to the suchness nature of reality. Reality in its suchness, just this, just this, just this. The unadorned, nature of reality as it is, as we experience it. Tathata in Sanskrit, tathata, suchness. And so why bother with shunyata? Shunyata, emptiness, no thingness, nothingness. Why bother with no mind, no buddha? When we have tathata, why, why, why dive into shunyata? the empty nature of reality. I think we can understand this through our practice in the very same way. We can become familiar with this through our practice in the very same way. When we sit and we're engaged entirely in body, heart, and mind, pouring body, heart, and mind into the simple unadorned act of sitting. This is also a letting go. Thoughts arise as they do, and we let go, and we let go, and we let go. We don't push away, we simply let go. 
Thoughts arise and we let go. Emotions arise and we let go and let go and let go. The preoccupations that occupy us during the day arise and we let go and let go and let go. As we eat our meals and wash the dishes, as we clean the zendo, as we clean our house, as we take a walk outside, as we have a conversation with the loved one, as we feel despair, as we feel joy, when we do this with the entirety of our body, heart, and mind, we let go and let go and let go. This is itself a letting go. And so what happens when there's nothing left to let go of? What's left when there's nothing left to let go of and there's no one left to let go? What's there? There's nothing left to let go of and there's no one left to let go. What remains? There's nothing to say about this. Um, you can't say Maya, you can't say Buddha, you can't say Siddhesh, you can't say Taigen, you can't say Chicago, you can't say Vermont. When everything is let go, then there's nothing, there's no one left to let go, there's nothing to say. Nothing can fit into this. Where can a dust of where can a speck of dust settle? But as the Tao Te Ching says, um, you cannot know it, but you can be it. You cannot know it, but you can be it. And so, why bother? Um, why bother with all of this letting go? Why bother knowing uh, this other aspect of our reality, this other aspect of ourself? Or there's nothing to say and no one to say it. Why bother becoming familiar with this? Well, I think actually the COVID pandemic has provided us with a very vivid example, um, a very vivid uh, metaphor, so to speak. Um, I think you know, over the past more than a year, many of us know what it feels like to feel confined uh, within these four walls, to have our existence confined to four walls to have our reality bound by our house or our little apartment. And so imagine what it might feel like to think that this is reality, that these four walls are our entire existence. Outside, nothing else. Just this, just these four walls, that is all I am, that is all my life is. How might that feel? What might that do to us? What might the impact of that way of thinking be? And imagine how it might feel after thinking that this four wall, these four walls are the entirety of my life to be pulled out, pulled out of the four walls into vast reality as it is to know that there is a huge planet under our feet, a huge, infinitely complex planet under our feet. And when we look up, there is an endless cosmos with galaxies and nebulae and things we will never understand that our minds can't even grasp the scale of. To know that we are a part of this, to know that this is us, that this vast reality is our skin, our marrow, our blood, our bones. And to be relieved of this idea that my reality is this four walls. It's just this little house, this apartment to be pulled out into the vast wilderness of self, 
And I may be so bold as to even opine that this really is the heart of Zen, to pull us out into the vast wilderness of self. And not to refute our four walls, not to decry our four walls, but to contextualize our four walls. So we can return to them with a newfound ease, with a newfound love, perhaps, with a newfound appreciation, gratitude, care for the four walls of our own life, knowing that these four walls exist in the vast wilderness that is also us, that is also our life, the unknowability of our life, the vastness of our life, the vastness of the existence that is us. So I believe that we can only really appreciate our life, as we live it ordinarily, our mind as it uh, functions ordinarily in this conversation, um, cleaning the dishes and cleaning the zendo and, you know, feeling joy, feeling despair, having a conversation. I feel like we um, can only truly appreciate that mind itself is Buddha um, when we've gone through gateway of no mind, no Buddha. I think Matsu is very kind to illuminate both sides for us. Not just one or the other, Matsu is very, very kind to illuminate both sides for us. And so to go through our own silence, to go through our own unknowability, our own vastness of which there's nothing to say about, and to come back to, ah, Chicago, Vermont, Taigen, Satish, just talking, just listening, taking a walk, cello in the background, or is it a bass, Alex? It's an upright bass. Coming to a new appreciation of just this. Or in the words of uh, the Japanese and Master Torres Enji. When I look at the real form of the universe, all is the mysterious unfolding of the glorious nature of Tathagata. None can be other than the marvelous revelation of its light in every moment, in every place, in every being. This realization made our founding teachers and virtuous Zen leaders extend tender care with the heart of worshiping to animals and birds and indeed to all beings. This realization teaches us that our daily food, drink, and clothes are the protections of life, the warm flesh and blood, the merciful incarnation of Buddha. Who can be ungrateful or not respectful to each and everything, including human beings? So I'll just conclude by reading a little bit of an essay by 13th century Japanese monk Ehe Dogen. Um, I'll only read a short excerpt from this essay that is called in Japanese Genjo Koan, translated here as actualizing the fundamental point. It's a incredibly rich and brilliant and profound essay. And I highly recommend if you haven't um, exploring this work with someone very qualified like Taigen, um, whom we're blessed to have as a guide. As all things are Buddha Dharma, there are delusion, realization, practice, birth and life, birth, life and death, Buddhas and sentient beings. Let me start this again. Um, I don't want to, Butcher, Dogen, he deserves better. <laughs> Let me read this better. As all things are Buddha Dharma, 
There are delusion, realization, practice, birth, life and death, Buddhas and sentient beings. As all myriad things are without an abiding self, there is no delusion, no realization, no Buddha, no sentient being, no birth and death. The Buddha way, in essence, is leaping clear of abundance and lack. Thus there are birth and death, delusion and realization, sentient beings and Buddhas. Yet in attachment, blossoms fall, and in aversion, weeds spread. To carry the self forward and illuminate myriad things is delusion. That myriad things come forth and illuminate the self is awakening. When you see forms or hear sounds, fully engaging body and mind, you intuit dharma intimately. Unlike things in the reflections in the mirror, and unlike the moon and its reflection in the water, when one side is illuminated, the other is dark. And if I may be so bold as to add uh, my own thought to Dogen's profound insights, um, I might add that to illuminate one side, you must illuminate the other. For one side to be illuminated, we must illuminate the other. So, thanks for listening. Um, at this time, please let us share our thoughts. And um, unless there's a question or comment directed at me, I would uh, prefer just to be quiet and listen. Thank you so much, Sudesh, for a really fine uh, discussion of one of my very favorite Zen stories. Um, I have a comment and question, but uh, I also have a, a separate question unrelated, which I'll save for later. Um, so first, um, another comment directly on this story by Dogen. He says, uh, this very mind is Buddha, difficult to practice, easy to expound or express. No mind, no Buddha easy to practice, difficult to express. <laughs> uh, so my question for you, Sudesh, uh, if you will, is, uh, and again, I really, really, really appreciated your comments on this wonderful story, but why is it that Dame says uh, that for himself, this very mind is Buddha is enough? I feel like it's the comment of one who has come to know the wilderness and returned to the four walls with a newfound understanding of his four walls. Great. Um, uh, I'm sure other people have comments, responses, questions. Um, you please raise your hand or you can go to the participant window and uh, click on the uh, raise hand option, but please feel free to uh, join with Sadesh in commenting on this story. This is no mind, no Buddha. <laughs> Will anyone venture into this very mind as Buddha? Paul, please. 
uh, good to make your acquaintance. Uh, um, I have not heard you speak before, but I'm very happy to have heard that today. Um, I think I think I have a slightly different interpretation than anyway. I think that the opening that opening line of Dogen's again, Joe Cohen, is expressing exactly the same sentiments as the as the as the Cohen. It is uh, first they're saying that there's there's mind and then there's Buddha, and that's and that practicing practicing Buddha as mind and mind as Buddha. This is this is a, a statement of practice. Um, and then saying that no mind, no Buddha, that's a statement, that's that's the that's the the statement of leaping clear of the many and the one. There's no no practice involved because there is no there's no distinction, there's no dualism. Um and much like the Cohen at the end of the, much like the story at the end of the Genjo Cohen about the fan and the air, you know. It's the, the nature of the nature of air is everywhere. That's no Buddha, no no mind, but fanning it is this mind is Buddha. Um, so I, that's that's the way I see it. Is that the mind? This mind is Buddha is correct, but incomplete in a sense, and that no mind, no Buddha is ultimate, but incorrect in that you must practice. Um, and in that realm, there are no walls. There are no walls. There are no, there, there's no, there's no, no hindrance. Thank you. Thank you, Paul, uh, very much. Uh, other comments, responses, reflections, please feel free. I know that some of you have things to say. I'm not sure I have a thing to say, but I'll, but I'll say something anyway. First, <laughs> I want to say, Sidesh, it's really nice to meet you, and thank you so much for your talk. Uh, I'm thinking about um, what it means for something to have two aspects or two sides and how that, how that can be in the same reality as, as non-dualism. I mean, may, maybe it's just that I'm talking language and so there's subject-object and there's implicit dualism I'm trying to talk about. Maybe it's that. Maybe it's the limitation of language. But, I, but I'd love to hear if you have, if you have more thoughts about, about aspect and, and, and the, the, the two-ness of, of aspects that you were talking about, the two sides. Uh, me specifically or the group at large? Well... Um, <laughs> if 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 there's a if there's a chorus of responses, great. But I but I I'd, I'd love to hear. I mean, I really enjoyed your talk. And if 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 you have if if there are further thoughts along those lines, I'd I'd love to hear. Yeah, thank you for your question. Um, I guess I'll put it this way, which I'm not sure if it really addresses your question, but perhaps it's the best that I can do. Um, if someone asked me to choose which one is it mind itself is what the hour is it 
no mind, no buddha, I would probably respond by asking them to choose the front of their body or the back of their body. Thank you. David Weiner. I just want to say uh, hello to Sid. Good to see you. Good to see you. And thank you for your talk. And it's interesting because there's so many different facets, and yet the facets are woven into one cloth. And that way, there is no subject object because it is all part of one cloth. And uh, his living in a hut reminds me of the song of the grass hut. You know, how can this lonely mountain monk, you know, living in 10 square feet, you know. You know, I just I just found it very. Fascinating. Let's put it that way. But I like what you just said now to David Ray. Choose your front of your body or choose the back of your body. It's still the body. So thank you. Thank you, David. And it's wonderful to see you. Dylan. Yeah, here's a question. What's the body? That's that's for anybody. Anybody that wants that one. Is it is it my body? It's four it's four walls and it's the vast cosmos. Because I think it's important to have a body at some point, like conventionally. Okay. I don't see any hands, but I'm going to be so bold as to call on Douglas, who often has very good things to say, very illuminating things to say about these old koan stories. Douglas, any any comments or reflections for suggestion for us? <laughs> I don't think I have anything particularly illuminating other than to uh, quote uh, Katagiri Roshi's talks about uh, returning to silence on the one hand and you have to say something on the other hand. Um, there's uh, the question is, is there anything on the other side of returning to silence or having to say something? Is there, anyway, I'll leave it with that. Sudesh, any responses? 
two thumbs up. <laughs> okay. Niozan, do you have any comments? Uh, <clears throat> no. Um, just, uh, I really appreciated the, uh, the, the talk today. It was really good. I didn't realize that, um, you know, <clears throat> when I was speaking with you yesterday after a nap, I, I was pretty groggy and, um, I didn't realize you were talking about, um, Dami when you were asking about Fachon. So anyway, sorry about that, but I really enjoyed your talk. Thank you. If nobody has any other comments on this, anybody? I'll ask it, uh, an unrelated, well, I don't know, nothing's unrelated, but I'll ask a different question. Uh, so, Sidesh, it's great to have you back here. Um, hi. <laughs> um, I would wonder if you would please say something about what you are teaching at the University of Vermont and also about your dissertation at Loyola that uh, you finished. If you would, please. Yeah, sure. People will have responses. Sure. Um, so uh, what I teach at Loyola within social work is um, it's a class called Human Behavior in the Social Environment. And the way that I teach that is I focus on different um, theories that help us understand the human experience. So these are pretty broad, such as systems theory, um, feminism, Marxism, um, developmental theories. Um, so it's a broad theoretical overview of um, human experience. So I'm very grateful to be able to teach that two course sequence here. Um, my students are often or always uh, very brilliant and often express it openly in class. And so I learned a whole lot from them. Uh, my dissertation is talking to 35 Zen teachers in the United States, including Taigen, um, who engage in work that overlaps with social work. So this could include um, activism, this can include community organizing, this can include um, psychotherapy or group therapy or, um, organize, or creating organizations that meet human needs, um, interviewing 35 teachers and asking them um, basically how they understand their relationship to other beings and the world and how this understanding um, shapes the ways in which they respond to suffering. So what that kind of leads to is a way of understanding um, some of the work of social work, but from uh, a Zen worldview as represented in 35 American teachers or teachers in America, I should say. And if anyone is interested, I'd be happy to send it to you. And I'll even tell you which parts um, not to read if you, if, if you care about your time. <laughs> and any questions for Sadesh about or comments about uh, his teaching at the University of Vermont or his university uh, dissertation? Uh, which I haven't seen yet, but I'm eager to look at. So you can please send me a copy, Sudesh. I want to see what you wrote about me. Sure. I think Ruben, your hand was up before. It was maybe in response to the to the talk. Uh, it, it it was. Um, I hope my bandwidth is good enough. It's giving me problems on this end. But Sudesh, thank you so much for your talk. Um, the koan, I, I heard it again for the first time. Thank you for that. Um, 
I was really struck by that Matsu always confusing people. <laughs> it really is like, oh, right, he's a teacher. His job is to upset the understanding of his students, right? Um, and it, the the two pointers really made me think of Ikkyun, Ikkyu, who I really resonate with because I, I, I see him as very messy. <laughs> and like, that's very much my practice is very messy. And, um, how uh, when he had his, his his experience, like he went to his teacher and tried to explain it to him, and his teacher said, you know, that's that's great, but it's not the teaching of the Buddhas and ancestors. And like, he was like, well, you know, <laughs> it may not be, but it's good enough for me, right? And the teacher was like, oh, yeah, that's the teaching. And uh, that's what I hear here, this, uh, um, these two ways of pointing at emptiness. And uh, like, yeah, my understanding is good enough, man. <laughs> and I really, I really appreciate that. Good morning. Okay, go ahead. It's interesting. What just flashed in my mind, um, and I don't know how many of you are aware of uh, Feldenkrais uh, body work and who Moshe Feldenkrais was, or Noguchi Sensei in, in, uh, in Japan, who started Seitai. Some of you may be familiar with one or the other, um, or neither. But both of them were talking about habitual action, and what we do, and what we do without thinking, and how it's reflected in our bodies, and uh, how it runs our lives. And what I just hear you saying, Sid, it, you know, with Ruben's saying that, and then it just realized what you were saying too, uh, Sid, is that break your habitual pattern and uh, and then be in the world, and that's what that's what practice is is breaking our habitual act, actions of just looking myopically and opening our, 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 our eye view to encompass more than what we normally limit ourselves to see. So thank you for your talk. Uh, Sidesh, do you have any comments on Ruben's messy practice? Sounds good to me. <laughs> so, David Ray. Siddesh, I have a question about your dissertation. Uh, what an interesting kind of fieldwork, uh, interviewing Zen teachers and their relation between 
teaching and tradition on the one hand and then and then social work social social being being a change maker on the other were there were there things were there big surprises was was there a, a big surprise in your research you know that's a great question thank you david um there were some surprises in the research process uh, like the findings and things that emerged but I think much of it was kind of a long, like just because I've spent some time um, reading these folks and listening to these folks and, you know, coming to know them and their work. I think um, much of what they shared, I I expected, you know, Uh, that's not to say anything uh, negative. It was all very beautiful and moving and powerful. I thought, I think what was actually surprising to me was the interpersonal process. Um, It was, it's, it's a neat experience to meet, you know, I interviewed 35 and I met a bunch more. So to meet about 50 Zen teachers in a year is an interesting thing. And to have conversations with them in this way is is interesting. And so um, what was surprising for me is how different teachers express their dharma. Um, and it was an interesting process for me to learn as, as a person, as a practitioner myself, um, what I find more invigorating um, uh, what I kind of appreciate more simply personally um, in terms of Dharma expression. Um, that, that was very interesting for me. Um, so it, it was a very much a personal process and not just an academic process. I think I learned a lot about myself and my practice along the way. Um, so I'm very, very grateful for the project um, for being able to do it. And in large part, thank you. Thanks to Tygen, um, without whom it just could not have happened. Um, yeah. I could say more about that if there is any curiosity, um, but I could also leave it at that if, if that's better. Uh, please say more. Yeah. Um, it's interesting to see how 50 different teachers are just 50 different individuals. Um, and that's not to diminish uh, the role of a teacher or what a teacher offers. Um, it's also to reaffirm that teachers are individuals and they bring their individuality to teaching. And so it's really interesting to, you know, meet with Tygen Dan Layton, to meet with Joan Halifax, to meet with David Lloyd, to meet with um, Greg Snyder in Brooklyn or Egyo um, Kuhl Roshi in Los Angeles or Pat and Kiyohara and have very, very different ways of bringing Dharma to life. It's, it's very interesting. And some taking a more intellectual approach, some taking a more kind of um, poetic existential approach, and some simply um, just kind of demonstrating with their action what, what, they, um, what they have to express um, in a less kind of verbal approach. And, and so... Um, I, I, I didn't think any of these was better or worse. That's not at all what I'm trying to say. It's not an evaluation. I was just struck by the diversity um, of presentations. And some did resonate more strongly with me. Um, not Again, not to evaluate, but as an individual myself, I found some teachers' uh, way of being um, more resonant with myself. And I found some teachers not very resonant with myself. Um, some teachers, I, I was very fascinated with um, what felt to me like um, 
high degree of ego. Um, that was, that was unexpected. Um, perhaps naive of me to not expect that because we are all humans are we not. Um, but, uh, to encounter, you know, a couple of teachers, um, who, uh, if the practice is to, um, see beyond our ego, they are a koan to me. <laughs> I'll put it that way. So thank you for the questions. Hey, Ed. Hey, nice to see you, Sadesh. You too. It's I, I've heard, it, it, it's true that it's colder in Vermont than Chicago, isn't it? I think. Is it in the wintertime? <laughs> Depends on the day. I think y'all have, um, y'all have like the lake effect, you know, coming off of Michigan. And we have more snow. But I think, I think on average, Chicago is a little bit colder. Um, I don't oh. know. <laughs> yes, I was referring to the I was to the average, of course. Um, you know, I find I find, and thank you for your presentation. It was it was a real gift. You know, this idea of of mind and no mind, I've always sort of experienced as as emblems, contrasting emblems, um, referring to the same pattern, the identity, the same pattern. And I see that pattern in some ways. I experience it as one's relationship to culture. And that that relationship is a kind of an alliteration of death in every instance. And so in the way you presented your story of distance and engagement, I think is quite poetic. And I appreciate your, your, your rendering of it. Thank you again. I'm not sure if I meant to do that. And I think what you just said is uh, more poetic than what I offered. That's my two cents. So thank you for sharing. (laughs) Any other comments or responses? If not, we'll go to our chance. Uh, any last uh, uh, responses or reflections? If I may say one more time, it's really lovely to see all of you. Um, and thank you, Sid, for a very fine talk. And uh, David, would you now uh, we'll do the, uh, the closing chant? Uh, yes, followed I will. by announcements and a time to hang out informally. Yes, yes. So this will be complex and exciting for me because I'm going to share the audio file or try to for the Heart Sutra. But first we will chant the repentance verse and we will chant it three times and it is coming. All my ancient twisted karma from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion born through body, speech, and mind, 
I now fully avow all my ancient twisted karma from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion born through body, speech, and mind. I now fully avow all my ancient twisted karma from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion, born through body, speech, and mind, I now fully avow. Heart of Great Perfect Wisdom Sutra, uh, uh, uh. Avalokiteshvara Bodhisattva, when deeply practicing Prajnaparamita, clearly saw that all five skandhas are empty and thus relieved all suffering. Shari Putra form does not differ from emptiness. Emptiness does not differ from form. Form itself is emptiness. Emptiness itself form. Sensations, perceptions, formations, and consciousness are also like this. Shari Putra all dharma. Are marked by emptiness, they neither arise nor cease, are neither defiled nor pure, neither increase nor decrease. Therefore, given emptiness, there is no form, no sensation, no perception, no formation, no consciousness, no eyes, no No object of mind, no realm of sight, no realm of mind consciousness. There is neither ignorance nor extinction of ignorance, neither old age and death, nor extinction of old age and death. No suffering, no cause, no cessation, no path, no
trump which removes all suffering and is true, not false. Therefore we proclaim the Prajnaparamita mantra, the mantra that says Gate, Gate, Paragate, Parsangate, Bodhisattva. May all awakened beings extend with true compassion their luminous mirror wisdom. With full awareness we have chanted the heart of great perfect wisdom sutra. We dedicate this merit to our original ancestor in India, great teacher Shakyamuni Buddha, our first woman ancestor, great teacher Maha Prajapati, our first ancestor in China, great teacher Bodhidharma, our first ancestor in Japan, great teacher Eihei Dogen, our first ancestor in America, great teacher Shogaku Shunryu, the perfect wisdom Bodhisattva Manjushri, to the well-being of all those afflicted with ills, and to peace pervading for all peoples of the world. Gratefully we offer this virtue to all beings. All Buddhas throughout space and time, all honored ones, bodhisattvas, mahasattvas, Wisdom beyond wisdom, Mahaprajna Paramita.